And I wanna start today with a little bit of review, okay? So let's get our minds engaged. I know some of us are kind of coming in just a little bit late, but let's try and engage our minds. We gotta use our time efficiently, okay? So just a couple of review questions, all right? Last week, we, we, asked, we said this, that if the Bible had an outline, then it would be by what? What would be the best way for us to outline the whole story of the Bible? There was a particular word we used to outline the whole story of the Bible. Covenant, good. Thank you, Michael, okay? And then we talked about the covenants in the scripture. There is some disagreement, but I tend to go with what is the most common view. I think it's six. I gave you that chart. And who could tell me who the first covenant in the scripture was made with? Michael's already answered, so I want someone else to participate. Let's do hands. That way we can make sure that we're, we're ca- catching people. Who was the first covenant of the scripture made with? Sid? Adam, okay. So Sid, you're disqualified now. All right. And then uh, there were three primary promises that God made in his covenant with Abraham. Three primary promises. Who can tell me one of those? Three things God promised to Abraham and his seed. Great nation, so that'd be seed, right? Great nation, great. Okay, so that's one of them. There's two more. Who can give me two of the others? So we have seed. What are two other promises that God promised to Abraham? The land. Okay, and then there's one more. So land, seed, and what? Someone else, raise your hand. Blessing. Thank you, Ruth. All right, so uh, land, seed, and blessing. Okay, so God also made a covenant with David. And what was, in your own words, I don't think there's a particular way to say this, but what was the primary promise of God's covenant with David? Mark? Forever, right? David's descendants would be, or a seed would be on the throne forever. Now, this may be a little less tricky. I don't think I had it particularly on your outline. But if all of those covenants, even the unconditional ones, God expected what response from his people? In response to his covenant with them, God expected his people to do what? Big general word. Obey. That's right, okay? So God expected obedience from his people. All right, now let's launch into today's lesson on the new covenant. So if God expected his people to obey his covenant, hey, let's agree that if you're reading the Old Testament, obedience wasn't really Israel's specialty. Can I get a witness to that? By the way, it's not your specialty or mine either. Um, And we'll talk about how we're maybe at an advantage compared to them. And so God held up his end of the bargain Because in the covenant with Israel, he said that if they disobeyed, there would be curses. I believe it's Deuteronomy 28, if I remember right, is where those covenant curses are listed. So God says, if you obey, I'll give you blessing, right? If you disobey, I will bring curses upon you. And and one of those curses was that God would take away the land from his people, okay? He would remove them from the land. And when you get kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, that's what happens. God allows the land to be taken from Israel. And it was really dramatic. I mean, think about this. We know about all these promises. The temple gets decimated, right? 
the land is taken over by foreign enemies, and many of the people are carried off to a foreign land to be slaves. The last king of Israel, Mark, you talked about how the seed of David would be on the throne forever. Here's how the last king of Israel, the last descendant of David, ends his life. One of the Babylonian, I think it's the Babylonian um, kings, takes his sons, his seed, and he slaughters them in front of his eyes right before that king gouges out the eyes of the last descendant of David. So as to say, hey, you think God is going to be faithful to his promise? Watch this. That's a pretty rough ending to the story, if you ask me. So captivity happens. That's in 586 BC that this Babylonian captivity begins. And if you're reading the Old Testament through this covenant lens, and if you're thinking like the people of Israel are thinking, you're going to ask yourself this question. Has God forgotten his people? And if God manages to give them back everything that they lost, how can we know that they won't lose it again? Right? Right? By the way, the book of Judges, this wasn't the first time Israel lost the land. The whole plot of the book of Judges is Israel falls into disobedience, enemies take over the land, God raises up a judge, a savior to deliver them. And over and over and over and over again, they fall. And then God raises up David and just give it a couple generations and they're facing the same thing again. So here's the question, okay? God, are you even gonna be faithful to your promises? I think we all struggle with that question sometimes too. And number two, God, if you give them back the land of the king and the temple, who's to say they won't ruin it again? And at that point, the new covenant enters the story. The new covenant is described by all of what we call the major prophets. They're not major because they're more important. They're major because their books are longer, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all have passages about this new covenant. We're only going to look at Jeremiah's here for just a minute, but this new covenant was preached by all the prophets to Israel of the hope that they would have after God's judgment. He was saying to Israel, I'm not done with you, and, and, and I'm going to form a new covenant with you, which we've come to expect if God forms a new covenant, he's going to fulfill the promises of the old covenants prior, but he's also going to modify and add to them right? So God had promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing, which is very similar to his covenant with David, but it was changed a little bit because now that, that blessing and that seed is really restricted to the line of the king. So as we have this new covenant entering, we should expect that some things are about to change. But yet God also says that this new covenant would bring the covenant with Abraham and David to fulfillment. And we're going to see this new covenant in the book of Jeremiah. It's not in your handout, but this is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's on the screen. Okay, so here's the text. This is the, the, the one that most clearly talks about the new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now notice there's discontinuity there. He says, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant could God be talking about here that was made when he brought them out of Egypt? Which covenant would that be? Mosaic covenant, right? So that's the Mosaic. So he says, this is not, this is not exactly like the Mosaic covenant. There's some differences here. Why? Because they broke it. Just like I said, who's to say that they're not going to break it again? In that Mosaic covenant, which is stated in Exodus and then expanded in Deuteronomy, that's the covenant where God says, if you 
disobey, I'm going to take away the land. And I'm also going to ruin the land. It's not going to be fruitful anymore, right? So he says, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord. And here's the differences. He says, I will put my law in their inward parts. I'll write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul reflects on this later that in in the old covenant, the law was just written on tablets of stone or on paper. But God says that there's gonna be something different because the law will now be in the hearts of his people. Hold up. Based on what Jeremiah is saying there, was the law in the hearts of the people up to this point? No. Something was gonna change something supernatural that would put the law in their hearts. Now, what does that sound like to you as a Christian? It sounds like the Holy Spirit. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's quoting actually the book of Exodus. Now, this is an interesting statement. Listen to this. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. Now, what is that saying? He's saying that at this time in the, in the old covenant, there were people who were part of Israel who did not know the Lord. They were in the people of God by circumcision, but they were not the people of God in their faith. Now that's a problem you and I don't think about a lot, but God is gonna solve this problem. How is he gonna solve this problem? How is he gonna make a whole community of his people all people that have the law of God in their inward hearts who know the Lord, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. How? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now that's different because God was remembering their sin, right? There were curses upon their sin, but there would be something different about this forgiveness that would wipe away their sins and give them an eternal forgiveness that God would not hold their sins against them any longer. So here's the the three um, questions we're going to ask today. Number one, did Jesus inaugurate or bring a new covenant, right? Number two, how is the new covenant fulfilling the promises of the old covenant, and how is the new covenant different? Here's the first thought. Did Jesus inaugurate a new covenant? Well, I believe so, because Jesus and the apostles considered Jesus to be initiating a new covenant. There's very explicit statements in the Bible. Uh, We're we're gonna take communion tonight, uh, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, he said, this is my blood, which is what? The new what? The New Testament, which is the same Greek word for covenant, okay? Same Greek word. Uh, the, the way we know that is testament really is like a will, your will and testament. It, it's a set of binding promises, giving people something. So Jesus says, this blood is the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. Second Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says he's a minister of the new testament or the new covenant. So Paul saw a difference, right? Paul called it a new covenant. And then Hebrews 12, 24, which actually we're gonna talk about next Sunday in our message on Cain and Abel. It says this, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant covenant, right? Well, how how did he become the mediator of the new covenant? Through his blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. And we'll talk about what that means. It's a powerful verse. But here's what, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying. Who is the mediator of the Abrahamic covenant? Who is the covenant head of the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham, right? 
And then in Moses, you have the, the Levites, the priests, right? And Moses. And then with the Davidic covenant, who was the mediator of the Davidic covenant? It was the king, right? So he's saying there's a new covenant and a new mediator, Jesus Christ. God is going to work through him the same way that God worked through Israel in the Old Testament. He's now working through Jesus, right? And there's a lot of parallels that we don't have time to get into, okay? So how, here's the question. And you might write this question down because it really helps us unfold the rest of the lesson. Okay, if Jesus brings this new covenant, right? How do we, how do we view Jesus's relation to the old ones? What's their relationship, okay? And I think there's two ways we can view this based on scripture. Number one, we view it this way, that Christ fulfills all of God's promises, including the ones in the prior covenants. Christ is the fulfillment of them. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20 on the screen. For all the promises of God in him. Who do you think Paul's saying is him? Who's him? Christ, right? So all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him are amen, right? They're fulfilled unto the glory of God by us, okay? All the promises of God. How many promises do you think Paul's saying are fulfilled in Christ? All, okay? So look at your covenant handout. What are some promises in the Old Testament? If there's all the promises, what are some promises in the Old Testament based on these covenants? Anyone got some promises? Land? Seed? Let's keep going. Land, seed, what else? Come on, y'all, you just answered the Abrahamic covenant. Who said the third Abrahamic covenant promise? Blessing, Miss Ruth, right? What else? What about the Davidic covenant? What was the promise there, Mark? Seed on the throne forever, right? What else? Well, even Noah's covenant, right? He promised not to destroy the earth. That itself is figuring, prefiguring Christ and his mercy and his uh, sparing us from God's wrath. Any other ones in there? I can't remember. They're all kind of re repeated. And so and we could go to all of them, right? We could go to every other promise in the Old Testament. These are just the covenant promises. But here's what I want you to understand. Paul is giving us a way to view the Old Testament promises that all of those promises are fulfilled in Christ, that there is a way in which Christ and his gospel fulfills all of those. Now, we're gonna unpack some of that today, and then we're gonna unpack some of that in future lessons because there's a lot we could go into there, okay? So how do we view the covenant? We view the covenant as Christ fulfilling all of God's promises. The same, this is nothing new. The Davidic covenant, it wasn't like, well, what, is God being unfaithful to Abraham because he started this covenant with David? No, the Davidic covenant was fulfilling the promise to Abraham. In the same way that these covenants are fulfilling and building upon each other, the same is true with Christ and his new covenant. Are we together on this? So Christ fulfills all the promises. But on the other hand, the new covenant will modify certain promises of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant because it is superior. Okay, so here's this tension we have in all of our understanding of Old Testament and New. There's continuity and discontinuity. There's fulfillment and there's modification, okay? Hebrews talks about this very clearly. It's actually a summary of several chapters of argument happens in Hebrews 8. 
And actually, between verse 6 and 13, verses 7 through 12, is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in all of the New Testament. And guess what passage Hebrews 8 is quoting? It's quoting the one we read at the beginning, Jeremiah 31. Now, I'm not going to put all that on the screen because it would be repetitive, but I want you to see this in Hebrews 8, 6. Here's the, from the book of Hebrews, here's how we should view the old covenants, okay? Talking about Christ, he says, but now he, okay, so that's, that's Jesus, right? Hath obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises, okay? So the author of Hebrews is saying this, that when Jesus came, he issued something that had, uh, was a better covenant and had better promises. The idea behind the word better is that something's different, okay? And we talked about this in our lesson on sacrifice, right? Jesus is offering a better covenant, a better forgiveness, and better promises. He's modifying that idea of sacrifice. Are we following? Okay, now, verse 13 is even more explicit in how the old covenant is changing. There's modification to it. So the author of Hebrews is saying that when Jeremiah, by the word of God, says the term new covenant, he's giving us like a, a, a devotional thought and exposition on that idea. If he's saying it's a new covenant, he says, then that means he's made the first old, right? Right? That's not above any of our heads, right? If it's new, the other one's old, right? So he says, okay, if, if God is saying there's a new covenant, that means that all the other stuff is old, okay? And if all that other stuff is old, then it's decaying and waxing old and is ready to vanish away. So that tells us that there's some modification. Some things in the old covenant are going to vanish away. Can we think of some things in the Old Testament that in some ways have vanished away because they've been changed by Christ? What are some things that have vanished away from the Old Testament because they've been changed by the better covenant of Christ? Robert, sacrifice, other thoughts? Are we looking for a physical earthly king? No, we, we have a better king, an eternal king, King Jesus. We'll talk about next week, the priesthood. The priesthood has vanished away we have a high priest who is Jesus Christ, who was better, right? He was an eternal priest. He didn't offer sacrifices in the earthly tabernacle. He offered them in the heavenly tabernacle, okay? And, and what I'm gonna make the case to you is in these future lessons is that a lot of the old covenant promises have changed or vanished away because they are fulfilled and modified in Christ, okay? This is not my idea. This is not some newfangled way to view the Bible. This is how the Bible views itself. Okay, so how do we view the covenant? We view the covenant as Christ fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises, but also modifying some of them. They're gonna look a little bit different the same way that every new covenant changes the prior covenant. So here's how we, how we see how Christ fulfills the promises of the previous covenants, okay? Number one, Jesus is the obedient son that Adam never was. What was the covenant with Adam? Adam's job was to keep and to guard the garden. His job was to be the image of God, to rule and have dominion over the earth, not to eat of the, free, the fruit of the tree. But he failed. But Jesus 
is the image of God. The Bible says that. And Jesus was that obedient son of God, right? As Jesus is getting baptized, what does God say from heaven? This is my beloved son, right? Genesis 5 says Adam is the son of God. So God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus fulfills that first covenant with Adam and he restores the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He allows us to bear fruit and multiply for his glory. That's why the book of Acts uses that term multiply so much. It's showing us that through Christ, we're fulfilling the Adamic covenant. And then through Christ, we see all of creation subdued under his power, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. How else does Christ fulfill the old covenants? The new people of God are the fulfillment of God's promise to multiply Abraham's seed. Okay, so what did God promise Abraham? He said, I'm going to give you a ton of descendants, a lot, right? What, what is the metaphor that God uses to say how many descendants Abraham's going to have? They're going to be like what? Just because of the distance, I can't understand what you're saying. Sand, thank you, Mark. Sand and stars, right? Okay, so if you read the New Testament, the New Testament is saying that that's not just fulfilled in how many, how, how the nation of the Jews. That promise is fulfilled directly by the new people of God who are created and brought into relationship with Abraham through Jesus Christ, okay? Let's study this carefully in Galatians 3. Now, this is a very important part of the new covenant. We have to really interpret carefully, okay? Because there, there, there could be some disagreement on this. I'll be honest with that. Um, the question is asked this way, and we have to answer this question. Does God view Jew and Gentile as two separate people groups in the same way he did in the Old Covenant? Are they two different people, right? And, and your interpretation of that, or your answer to that question, my answer to that question, affects a lot of things. It affects our view of the end times. It affects some chapters we read in Romans, some things like that. It's an important question, okay? It's not gospel important, but it's important. Okay, so I'm just gonna share with you what I think is the most faithful biblical answer to that question. There are other ways people answer that question. I just don't think they're as consistent with the message of the Bible. Some would say that God still has this nation of Israel, which obviously the Bible views Israel as an ethnic group. It's not like God just is blind to ethnicity. You know, he doesn't just cover his eyes and say, I don't see color. That's not God. But what, what some would say is that there's these unfulfilled promises for the nation of Israel, that they're the separate group that God has separate promises for that don't apply to you as a Christian. My concern, my struggle with that, again, this is uh, an interpretation of the Bible, is that that's not how the New Testament speaks of Israel, like at all. Look at Galatians 3. <clears throat> Paul is speaking specifically about this Jew-Gentile division, which, by the way, is the context of the whole book of Galatians, because what was happening and you understand why it was happening, is that there were Jews who would say that the Gentiles who got saved, if they really want to be part of the people of God, they needed to start doing old covenant stuff. Why were they saying that? Because they, these Judaizers, viewed the Jews as separate from the Gentiles. So they said, if you want to be the true people of God, you need to get circumcised. You need to practice some of the Mosaic law. So they were saying, yes, there's a clear division and they're teaching on that division, then saying, because there is a division, you need to do all the Jewish stuff to be part of the people of God. Just read the book of Galatians. That's absolutely the foundation of it. 
So Paul is arguing against that. He's saying this is not, this is not true to Scripture. And he uses the example of Abraham. And he says that Abraham, unlike his descendants, what's interesting about Abraham is Abraham's entrance into covenant with God had nothing to do with his genetics. It had nothing to do with his nationality. How did Abraham come into relationship with God? Through his faith. So he says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, he's saying Abraham entered the covenant through faith, not through his genealogy. So now he's applying this to people who, like Abraham, were former pagans. Abraham came from the land of Ur. He was, he, there was nothing special about him. God called him out of that. And um, Paul is saying, just as Abraham entered into a relationship with God on the basis of his faith alone, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, who's that? Christians. The same are the children of Abraham. What's Paul saying? That if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the new Abraham, right? Matthew 1 makes that point. Matthew 1 has a lot of names in there, but what Matthew really wants to emphasize is Jesus is the seed of Abraham. So he says, if we're placing our faith in Abraham, or sorry, in Jesus, he is bringing us under his wing as the children of Abraham. Now, y'all, you got to understand that is very specific language. Paul is saying the seed of Abraham is not just the Jews, it's Christians of all backgrounds. And the scripture for seeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with Abraham. So he's saying, he, here's how the Jews viewed the Abrahamic covenant. They viewed Abraham as like a water pitcher. God would pour his blessing on Abraham, and then Abraham's pitcher would pour it out on the rest of the nations. But what really Paul is saying there is you're not underneath the pitcher. You're in the pitcher with Abraham. You are blessed with him in partnership with him. So it's not God pouring out his blessing on the Jews and the Jews blessing the nations. No, no, no. Those who are in faith in Christ are now grafted in, you, many of you have heard that term, into the family of Abraham. God is blessing them directly. And now there's a ministry to the nations, which we'll see in a minute, is all the unsaved. Now, this is a massive change in the covenant. Can we agree with that? This is very different. It's so different that Paul uses a term and that he calls it the mystery of the gospel. We'll get there in just a second. So, in Christ, we are not the nations blessed by Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. Through faith, we are Abraham's flesh and blood through Christ's blood and his flesh, right? So this incredible change in God's plan is called a mystery by Paul. And Paul expounds on this more when he talks about how Christ has fulfilled the law and inaugurated a new Israel, a new Israel. We won't cover Galatians 6, 15 through 16, but it's in line with the same argument. Paul calls all believers the Israel of God in Galatians 6, 16. So the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant was made with who? I'm sorry? Moses and the nation of Israel, right? 
So it was with Israel at Sinai, okay? God is calling a nation in the old covenant, Exodus 19.6, to be his peculiar people. So in the same way that God called Abraham out of the nations, he's calling this one nation out from the rest of the nations. They are his peculiar people. And remember that phrase, because we'll get there in a little bit in 1 Peter 2. So he's making them his people by his grace, and then they would demonstrate their status as his people by their obedience to the law. Their disobedience would not forfeit their status as God's people, but it would forfeit their blessings like the land and the kingship. Now notice how Paul talks about that this change in the people of God, that it's no longer God working through a nation, it's God working through a seed who are the believers in Christ Jesus. That's why this is such a big change that Paul, when he's trying to defend this to these mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles, he says this is a mystery. And the only reason we know about this is because God directly revealed it to us as apostles and prophets. So you're like, well, that sounds odd. That doesn't sound right to scripture. Well, you, you are feeling just like a first century church. <laughs> but, but, but Paul's saying, God revealed this directly to me. Look at Ephesians 3. How that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote afore in a few words, so he must have had another letter to the Ephesians, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Okay, so what is the mystery? Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of man as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this is new information. That's why it feels different, right? What is the mystery? Well, Paul says it. It's not whatever we want to make it out to be. It is this one fact, that the Gentiles should be what? Fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. So doesn't that sound a lot like what we just talked about, the pitcher illustration? That it's not the Jews who are the pitcher and we're like the the pot of plants that the Jews are watering. No, we are fellow heirs. We are with them. Doesn't Doesn't that sound like another term Paul uses in relation to Christ? What are we with Christ? We are what heirs? Joint heirs. So the same idea is because Christ was the new Abraham, we are joined with Christ and thereby we are joined with Israel. And we are the recipient of the same blessings God promised to the seed of Abraham. And we are of the same body. This would have been like heresy to a Jew, like legit heresy. Trying to erase this. We are of the same body and partakers of his promise. I think that refers to the Abrahamic promises because he's speaking about the Jews. So we are fellow heirs. We're the same body. We're partakers of his promise. How? Because we are in Christ by the gospel. And then Galatians 6.16, Paul makes it even more obvious when he calls all believers the Israel of God. Now, I don't think the church is really the replacement of Israel. I think the whole body of Christ and all the earth is really the replacement of Israel. So don't think that my theology is getting all messed up because that's not the same thing. There seems to be a different understanding between the Israel of God, the global body of Christ, and the church, okay? Now, now I, wanna, I want you to think about this, okay? What is the relevance to you and me if we are the new people of God. It's when you read Genesis 12, Paul saying in the Abrahamic covenant and you read of the Davidic covenant and you read in these Old Testament passages that are written in the nation of Israel, there is a way in which those are applied to you, the land. That's not just for the 
the ethnic Jews? What did Jesus say about inheriting property? He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit all the earth. So as we read the Old Testament, no, it's not the same as Israel. It's modified. We have to have good understanding of scripture. But as we read the Old Testament and we see God relating to his people, there is similarities that we can apply to our situation. There is also differences. So we have to be careful with that. So how does Jesus fulfill the next covenant? Jesus is the promised Davidic king who has established the kingdom of God on earth. 2 Samuel 7, 14 is the Davidic covenant we talked about last week. But Romans 1 shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant. What was the Davidic covenant? God was promised to David, your son will sit on the throne forever. When David's hearing that, he's thinking of Solomon. And when you read that passage, thinking, well, it is Solomon. But then there's other stuff that doesn't sound like Solomon. Because Solomon can't be around forever. Right? David thought maybe that this was his family would always have a place on a physical throne in Israel. But even that doesn't seem to be what God envisioned. He envisioned one person sitting on the throne forever, and that person is Christ, a greater king who had to come. In Romans 1, 3 through 4, I'll just quote it. It talks about Christ being the seed of David. Now, that's why Matthew, when he opens his gospel, spends a whole long chapter, the whole list of names, but in verse number one and verse number 20-something, he makes clear his point, that he's trying to connect Jesus to Abraham and to David, because it's those two that it was important who their descendant was, and it's those two that Jesus is bringing us in relation to the new people of God, the new Israel, and through the new Davidic king, Jesus is establishing a kingdom that we will be a part of. There's not a Jewish kingdom. It's the kingdom that is through Jesus Christ, and the book of Revelation expounds on that quite a bit. This is also why Jesus so frequently in his gospels, you've heard this in the book of Matthew, what term shows up so often? The kingdom of God. Friend, that's not just a metaphor. Jesus is making a very bold statement to Jewish people. He's saying, I'm coming as the Davidic king to inaugurate a new kind of kingdom. And as he gives his beatitudes, he said, this is what my kingdom is about. And there's some different stuff going on there. You're not just inheriting the land, you're inheriting all the earth. And he expounds even more and talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. So as we read that, we see Jesus pointing to himself as a new David, bringing us into relationship with this kingdom. Now, what relevance does this have to you as a Christian? Okay, let's give us some application. This is not just Bible knowledge. When we understand that as Christians, our king is who? Jesus Christ. And he is saying in his gospels that there is an already sense to this kingdom. The kingdom of God is here now, Jesus said. Now we believe, if we're premillennial in our eschatology, that there will be a a fuller and more complete inauguration of that kingdom where Jesus will himself set down on earth and have a kingdom that is on a planet. It's not just a mystical, like, spiritual reality. It will be a present physical reality. But even right now, Jesus sees our relationship to him as kingdom people with a king. Does that sound faithful to scripture to you? 
Some of you are not even nodding. Apparently I'm a heretic, all right? We are kingdom followers of a king, okay? That has real application to your life. What do kingdom people do in relation to their king? They submit. He is King Jesus. We submit to him. Friend, if we're part of another kingdom, at some point that ought to have ramifications for you personally and politically. Because ultimately as a Christian, your allegiance is not to any earthly kingdom. Your allegiance ultimately is to the kingdom of heaven. So when king president of the USA is in conflict with the kingdom of God, there is a clear choice that must be made. And I think Christians have been so blessed with a nation that gives a lot of freedom to God that sometimes those lines get really, really blurred and it concerns me. It concerns me that there's some blurring of who our king is and what kingdom we are a part of. That maybe sometimes our allegiance is to a different kingdom greater than the kingdom of heaven. If Christ is a king that has established a kingdom that will one day have control of all the earth, what does that make us think about the present struggles we have against evil and those who are opposed to Christ? It gives us hope that our king will be victorious. And as I'll talk about today, we better be on the right side of history, on the side of King Jesus. That even when all the world is against us, we have confidence that our king will bring his kingdom and he will crush the serpent's head and he will be in charge and we will regret it one day if we do not submit to him now because the day when he is victorious, we will appear before him in judgment with shame if we do not submit to him now. How's the new covenant different? Number one, the new covenant offers an eternal forgiveness of sins based on a superior sacrifice. Jeremiah was even pointing that when when he says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. We won't spend more time on that because we did a whole lesson on that. The new covenant forms a new people who now have the law of God written in their hearts. This is not the same people of Israel. This is different. This is a new people, but Paul appropriates the same terms to them from Jeremiah and 2 Corinthians 3, 3. Now remember back to our beginning of our lesson. Remember how the new covenant says you won't have to teach them and say, know the Lord, because there are people in Israel that didn't believe God, right? So in that covenant community, old Israel, there were unbelievers. Now imagine how many problems that makes if you had a church full of unbelievers, well, you know, that still creates problems in a lot of churches because there are a lot of people who have their name on a membership role who aren't believers of Jesus. But the new covenant's different. This is why I don't say the church is Israel. It's like Israel, but it's not Israel because in the church, there should be nobody in the church who is unsaved. When you talk about formal members of the church. And by the way, this is why Presbyterians and others baptize babies because they think that just like the circumcised children, they see such a correlation between Israel and the church that they think we should baptize children. But we look at Jeremiah and we say, no, 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 there's a difference because all of God's covenant people should be believers. Therefore, we only baptize true believers who have the law of God written on their hearts through the spirit of God. Are you following me? So this has doctrinal implications that are important, okay? 
So we are the new people of God who have the law written on our hearts. What else do we learn from this? Listen, as Christians, we learn that we should not be given over to moralism. Christians of all people should understand that I can teach you what the law is, right and wrong, but at the end of the day, as a Christian, my perspective is you can't fully obey that law without the spirit of God. Are we in agreement on that? But yet a lot of Christians, what they want to do is they want to force morals upon people who have no spirit. Now, again, there has to be law and order, and we have to respect other people's boundaries. But, but this can get really wacky in churches when they start saying, well, we want you to change. Don't you be walking in here if you have this different lifestyle or doing this different thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do they have the spirit of God or not? Why are we expecting people without the spirit of God to obey the law of God? So as Christians, we have to get these two things straight. And a lot of times we, we talk about morality the same way an Old Testament Jew would have. Not a New Testament, New Covenant believer who says you can't obey the law of God without it being written on your heart. So it helps us, if you have a family member who's living in open sin, friends, stop preaching to them their morals unless you're preaching morals to bring them to Christ. Are you with me? It's not gonna help you to just preach at them and say, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, upon what basis do you have to tell someone what they should and shouldn't do? You're hoping they'll, they'll obey it with, in the flesh? Well, that's not gonna do a whole lot between them and God, is it? No, we preach Christ, and then Christ puts his law in their hearts, and then through discipleship, they start obeying the law of Christ in their hearts, and their outward life changes. That is how we apply this idea of the new covenant. Here's the second one. The next thought, the holiness God desired for his people in the law of Moses would now be realized through obedience to the commands of Christ. <clears throat> There's a confusing relationship I think a lot of us have with the Old Testament. Like, what do we obey? What, is, what goes away? You follow me? Like, do I, do I kill oxes and bulls and goats or do I not? Do, do, I, do I not eat pork or can I eat pork? Because I really like bacon. So how do we deal with that question? Well, some people, the way they deal with that, and some of you maybe have heard this, is that they'll try and divide the Mosaic law between moral, civil, and ceremonial. You ever heard that? That's one way to look at it. I think that's not the best way to look at it because the law itself isn't even divided that way. When you read Exodus Leviticus, it's all like intermingled. So Moses is not giving us an idea that we should view the law in these three categories. So, okay, how do, we, how do we know that some of the law is gone and some of it still is echoed in the New Testament? The best way we can, ask, we can answer that question is that we look for the law to be repeated or echoed in the New Testament by principle or application. That's how we know what parts of the Old Testament law apply to us. We look to see how Christ and his apostles interpret it. Look at 1 Peter 2 and we'll be done. Peter uses very, very specific language, saying that these are a new people of God, a new Israel. He quotes Exodus 19, the inauguration of the Old Covenant. He says, ye, by the way, the ye, if you look at chapter one, verse two, he's saying the elect, which is all Christians. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, we'll talk about this, a holy nation. So he's calling all Christians a nation, a peculiar people, and he says, your purpose is the same as Old Testament Israel. You should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. Which in time past were not a people. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Gentiles. 
but now are the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And now he says, rather than, as Exodus does, Exodus says all the same stuff and then goes into the law. What does Peter do? He doesn't go into the law. He reinstates the morals of the law and he says this, beloved, abstain from fleshly lusts. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. What's interesting about that is Peter's now applying that term to non-Christians. He's writing to Gentiles. That whereas they speak against you as if they may by your good works glorify God in the day of visitation. So what, what is this saying? This is saying that we fulfill the Old Testament law by obeying the commands of Christ. This doesn't mean the Old Testament's irrelevant, but we remember that Jesus did not, did not command us to obey all things whatsoever Moses commanded. He says to teach them to obey all things whatsoever I have commanded. That in Christ and his apostles, we know what in the Old Testament applies to us as the new people of God and what doesn't. Let's pray this morning.